ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy. We have been in 1 Timothy for quite some time. If you're visiting with us, we've been in this letter, and we are now in chapter 6, near the end. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, I saved this section called doc, that I'll call a doxology for one sermon. So we are in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. We'll begin reading in verse 11. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, what do we mean when we say God is sovereign? Two, what do we mean when we say that God is immortal? Three, what are some things that you want to praise God for today? First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, this is the word of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we thank you for your word and the truth that you have spoken to us. Lord, we know that they are eternal truths that have great bearing on our lives each and every day. Lord, now as we turn our attention to this passage, we pray that you would help us to understand more fully who you are and how we as your creatures and especially as your redeemed creatures are to respond to you. Lord, so we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word by sending your Holy Spirit in a special way, sanctifying the words that come from this pulpit, from this preacher. And also that you would send your spirit in a special way to help all of us who will hear from you this morning to truly hear and respond appropriately to you. We pray these things in the glorious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Sometimes, maybe all the time, it's good to simply pause and meditate on the awesomeness of God. The Apostle Paul helps us to do that this morning as he's writing this letter to young Timothy, a church leader. He's already done that earlier in the beginning of the letter in reference to the first coming or the first advent of the Lord Jesus. In verse 17, chapter 1, he says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
here near the end of his letter, that place where we might think the letter would actually end with this doxology, it's in reference to the second coming of Christ. Children, the first coming is Christmas, what we call the Advent, the second coming when Jesus Christ returns, is the second advent of Christ. That return of Christ is something that all of us, every Christian, should always have in mind in a healthy way, not in a crazy way, not in this, this obsessive way that keeps us from being productive in an earthly sense, but to always have in mind the fact that our Savior is coming back for us. Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to take his church home with him. And then he will dwell among his people in the new heaven and the new earth. Something that's come to light to me recently in the use of this idea of come quickly, Lord Jesus, is in a much more personal way. Much more personal way. Rather new to me, but in reference to some folks who are dying a slow death, who want to go and be with the Lord, I've heard it referenced, come Lord Jesus come take me, come quickly and take me, take me home. And so Jesus is coming back in a big way to take his church, and he's coming in a personal way to take those of us who will die before he returns in a very personal way, home to be with him. That's the context in which Paul launches into this doxology. He breaks into this doxology and he he focuses on God. And you'll notice that he specifically focuses on the one who will reveal the Son at his return. Who will reveal Christ in his glory at his return. And we have to step back a little bit and recognize that Paul understands full well that there is one God in three persons. And as we look at the doxology, we'll see that there are common qualities found, attributes of God that apply to all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When we think about the person of Jesus, we want to make sure that we don't get confused. In Jesus' humiliation, in other words, when he walked on the earth, there were times when it was fully clear that he was fully human. But according to the Gospels, the account of the life and works of Jesus Christ, it's also very clear that he has some attributes of God, qualities attributed to him. So when we see Jesus on earth, we see the God-man in the flesh. But then when Jesus is exalted to the right hand of the Father, we see almost even more mixed Jesus in glory, in splendor and glory, with much of the majesty, the full majesty of God in his glorified state, never having lost any of the majesty of his being God at the same time. And so it, it stands to reason that some of the things we'll read in this list in the doxology of attributes are sometimes applied directly to Christ the person of Christ. You'll see, for instance, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and your mind and my mind will go right to Christ. But Paul here is helping us to see the bigger picture. Helping us to see the bigger 
picture. Paul is a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His whole ministry is to explain who the person of Christ is in light of God's salvation. But he never forgets that this whole work of salvation, even the sending of Christ, is from God, the one living God, the triune God. And so here he's going to set our eyes on the one who's behind the gospel, the one who sent the Son. Most likely he's referring to the Father. Odd as this might sound, brace yourself, odd as this might sound, we cannot love Jesus so much that we exclude the Trinity. So focused on Jesus that we forget that there is one eternal God. In fact, I would say instead that we ought to, out of love for Jesus Christ, give ourselves to know the eternal God, one in three persons, even better. This doxology helps us to do that. It's as if Paul says, let's step back and consider the glorious God behind everything, behind the gospel. The God who presents the Son in his glory. Doxology. Most every sound church has some form of doxology in their order of worship. We do. Ours usually comes at the end. Some churches put it nearer the beginning. I'll never forget in the church where I did my internship, we, we would have the call to worship, we would sing a hymn, we would take the offering, and we'd have the doxology. And my sister-in-law was visiting where in their church the doxology is at the very end of the service. Well, she's visiting our church, and she was somewhat dumbfounded when she thought the service was over after about 10 minutes because we sent, sang the doxology. But we have a doxology, simple praise to God, simply singing praises to God. Paul says, let's step back and praise God. Praise God. All of life is from God. He said that earlier in this very context. He mentioned that he is the God, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, etc. In the presence of God who gives life to all things. There is no life outside of God. Life would not exist if it were not for God. God would simply be, as he is still, self-existent. There would be no other life if he didn't create life. He is the God of all life. But to our great joy, he's also the God of new life. Because as we're well aware that mankind who was created to glorify and enjoy God rebelled against God and fell into sin, and we became dead in our trespasses and sins, and so God in his mercy sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to resurrect and conquer death, and to reign securing new life for us. So we always, in a way, have to go back to Jesus. It's sort of the reverse. If you think about Paul preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ with his Jewish background, 
the knowledge of God, the attributes of God, all the things of the, the one true and living God were known to the people of God, the Jews. What they didn't know was the person of Jesus Christ who had come in the flesh. So Paul has to preach the gospel of Christ. For us, it's sort of the reverse. We're very familiar with Christ, so familiar that sometimes we forget to look even higher to the triune God who is forever and ever. We just can't get away from Jesus, nor should we. But again, we have this doxology. Worship God. Paul, in these short verses, says an awful lot about God. And the important thing, one of the important things for us to recognize is that Paul isn't making this stuff up. Paul is not saying, here's my idea of God. You ever have anyone say that to you? Here's my idea of God. Here's my, here's my concept of God. Here's what I think God is. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul is expressing what God has revealed about himself. What God has revealed about himself. He's certainly pulling from deep knowledge that he has in his heart about the person of God, but, but we would recognize that everything he mentions about God here and elsewhere in Scripture are things that are mentioned in the Old Testament. And here he simply wants us to praise God, pause and praise God, this infinite, eternal God, expressing to him his glory. That's what Paul kind of diverts off into here. It's a good habit for us, isn't it, to just praise God for who he is. Some will pray that way. We praise you for who you are. If you think about your prayer life, sometimes that's very hard to do. One of the practices that we were encouraged to do a number of years ago with a program that we had here at our church was to begin our prayer simply praising God according to his attributes, according to his qualities, to not just launch into our requests of God or our petitions to God or even our confessions to God, but to simply, to simply bask in the glory and the magnificence of God himself. And Paul helps us to do that here being informed by scripture, but also having it come from his heart. He's the incomparable God. Now, I can't take the time this morning to use all the cross-references that Paul has in mind from the Old Testament, but I do want to at least turn us to one very significant one in Isaiah chapter 40. And as we move forward with the attributes and descriptions, in other words, as we hear about who God is and what he is like and what he does, think about what we read in Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 12. It's a little long, but listen and absorb. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? 
enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? Craftsman crafts, casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it silver, casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely was their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. There's just some of the description of the awesome God that Paul is pointing us to. When, when Job has this kind of revelation about God himself at the end of that account, he says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is in absolute awe of this God. Now, understand that when Job says that he saw God, it's figurative. Now he sees God for who he is. He despises himself, repents in dust and ashes. He's seen himself in light of the eternal And so Paul launches into this description of the person, the characteristics of God, and reflects on the works that he's done certainly behind all these things. He is the blessed sovereign. That word blessed, that, that truly blessed sense. Some like to use the word happy, and, and honestly, that's not a bad translation as long as you understand that happy in this sense doesn't mean giddy, it's like the Beatitudes. It's contentment. Contented is the man. Contented is he. And we can say that God, being God, is fully contented in himself. He is God. He is allowed to be that way. 
we can't relate to that because we would never and will never be fully contented with ourselves when we're still in the flesh that is failing and when we still have minds and hearts and souls that sin. But God, being God, is fully contented. We might even say delighted in himself. This blessed God is sovereign. All things are under his reign, his rule. Nothing comes to pass except for by his good and perfect will. Nothing. That boggles our minds because we know full well that sometimes terrible things do happen. But when you think about the person and the attributes and qualities of God and his works, we have to think in the ultimate sense of things. God is ultimately over all things. The psalm says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This this everlasting God is blessed. He is, as Paul says, the king of kings. He's the ruler of all things, the indisputable king of all creation, especially of God's people. This phrase, king of kings, full disclosure, is applied to rulers in Scripture. But it's most poignantly describing the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But here we understand that, that God Almighty is the ruler over all things, that, that no earthly power can compare to him. In both of our men's studies right now, we're studying Daniel. And you might be familiar with the statue that Nebuchadnezzar sees. It's the world powers in statue form. And those, each one of the parts of the statue that represents massive world governments, each one of them crumbles at the advance of the kingdom of Christ. And it strikes me that, that God can rise up and take down any government, massive as they may be, world power as they may be, because he is king over all kings. You even come to Revelation and the mystery Babylon, that which represents all those things that set themselves up against God, completely annihilated, crashed down, destroyed. Babylon the Great. God is king over all kings, over all principalities and powers. And he's the Lord of lords, to whom all submission of everyone anywhere is due. And if anyone should be aware of that, it's God's people. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it goes on in the same vein, but there, give thanks to the Lord of lords. Blessed sovereign, king of kings, lord of lords, who dwells in immortality. He has no beginning. He has no end. There's no death in him. There is, there is a deathlessness. That's actually the literal term that Paul uses, deathlessness. There's no death in him. 
He's shrouded in magnificence. King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. He's so magnificent, so filled with glory that to the naked eye it would be destructive to see him. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Invisible, no eye has seen him. Some have gotten glimpses. Some have seen a glimpse of his glory, and they're always undone. They're always awestruck. I'm not sure when we step into eternity exactly what we'll see. I know we will see the face of Jesus. But what of the glory of God? How will that be? God is invisible. We can't see him, but we will behold his glory beyond description, beyond our imagination. And because of all this, because of all this, the blessed, only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. He alone is worthy of worship, is worthy of wholehearted praise. Alone worthy of praise, that is worship. Are you overwhelmed by all of this? Maybe overwhelmed by too many words in one given sermon, but overwhelmed by, by the person of God and who he is and what he's like and what he does. I am. How could we not be? But all this to say that our great God is to be worshipped and adored and this God is ever near. Remember, this is in the context of Christ returning, but it's also in the context of Paul encouraging Timothy in the face of the great challenge of being a Christian. Verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. That's in there to remind Timothy and to remind us that there is perhaps danger in making the good confession of Christ. But Timothy, Christians throughout the ages, down to this day need to be reminded that this awesome God is right here. And he is particularly bound to his own people. God is everywhere. The children's catechism, where is God? God is everywhere. That's very satisfying. Paul at Athens says that 
God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. God is everywhere. But, but isn't one of the most, most amazing, most comfortable things about belonging to God through Jesus Christ this, that while God is everywhere, he's very near to us. Very near as a church, very near to us as individuals. And he knows our needs and he knows our fears and he knows your life and he even knows your death. So keep these truths always in your heart and in your mind. On your mind, in your heart, in your prayers, and in your songs. Immortal Invisible, written by Walter Chambers in 1867, is probably familiar to most of us. We should sing it with gusto. I'm not going to sing it at all, and I'm certainly not going to sing it with gusto. I had a friend who would lead worship in one church, and he'd sing with gusto. The problem was he would often sing different words that were in the hymnal. So not wanting to take that risk, reflect on these words from this, this wonderful hymn. Captures just about everything that Paul says and beyond. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains high soaring above, thy clouds which are fountains of goodness, and love. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, O oh, help us to see. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen and amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we praise you, we adore you. And certainly there is not a soul in this room that doesn't have their eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus. We can do no other because he is our redeemer. We see our Lord Jesus as revealed in scripture as the one bearing our sins and going to the cross and dying for us. And then rising up from the dead and ascending to the right hand of glory. We see magnificent images of the Christ in your revelation. You tell us in your word to keep our eyes fixed on our Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And in light of our love for Jesus, may that help us to love you, the eternal God, even more. And to know you and to get to know you better. 
and to search out your person and your works as you reveal yourself to us in Scripture. That our very hearts would have your glorious attributes and qualities indelibly, unerasably burned into our hearts. That we would be in awe of you, the one true and living, awesome God. We praise you and we adore you. Amen and amen.